So as we prepare to get into our text this morning, I want you to think about the many difficult balances in life. And we don't often consider them, but the decisions that we we make and the way that we live are marked by difficult balances. Like all of my favorite foods are the worst foods for me. And it's a difficult balance because I want my favorite foods all the time, but I can't. There's also a balance in our, our jobs and in our daily lives. We want to be productive, but I can't work all the time. I don't want to overexert myself. I need rest, but I don't want to be lazy. And there are so many of these, these things where we desire good, healthy balances within our lives. One of them you carry in your pocket every day. This is the most amazing tool the world has ever seen. Yet, it is the greatest source of temptation and the greatest opportunity to become an idol in our lives. And the balance we must find is something that the, the Christian continually struggles with. And for us, the balance in our life that's probably more difficult than any one is living as dual citizens. I don't know if you've ever heard this before. Because at the same time, we are citizens of earth. We live here, we sleep here, we eat here, we, we pay taxes, and we vote here, and all that stuff. But biblically, we are citizens of an eternal kingdom. Our citizenship is in a place that will not pass away. So at the same time, what is true of us eternally is still true now while we are citizens here. And this balance is difficult because where does my allegiance lie? Where do my time and my efforts get placed? Because if our true home and our true citizenship is in heaven, yet we are very much of this world and yet not to be like this world, then that is something that that we can consider, and for the rest of our lives, this will be a tension that we feel. So as we think about this section of Jesus' high priestly prayer, I want us first, as Christians, to reflect on what brought us here, how we got here as Christians, but more importantly, who bought us here. Because what is most important is not just that, that we are here or our circumstances, our surroundings, but whose we are and who bought us so that we would be here. Because I think this is very appropriate for our culture. As we think about the tension between being in the world but not of it, many Christians flirt with and have full-on adulterous affairs with the world. The world by its very nature is adulterous. It goes after other things. It is idolatrous. It puts the other things above God. And every day, every moment of every day, there is a temptation to be drawn and flirt with the things of the world. We know what flirting is. Well, I'm not really doing anything, but I'm taking a second glance. I'm beginning to let my mind go there. I'm playing with the ideas of what it would be like to engage in this behavior or in these desires or, com- or commit these things to my heart. And we have to guard against that. One of the things that we've seen most often repeated in here is some version of the phrase, the ones that the Father has given to the Son. Jesus says again and again, you have given them to me, what you have given to me. We are given so that we can be redeemed and forgiven because we are His. So Jesus' concern is of a nature of of possession. You are mine. This is what I want for you. I don't want you to be like the rest of the world. I am jealous for you because I know what's, what's best for you. I don't want you chasing after other things. And it's amazing that on the eve of going to the cross, Jesus is 
greatest concern is for the lives of his people in his absence. His greatest concern is what's going to happen to us when he leaves. This is our Savior. This is how much he loves and cares for them. But this is also how much he understands the danger of being in the world. Because this is something else that Christianity, modern Christianity has by and large got wrong. We were not redeemed so that we could just be slightly better versions of ourselves and, and, and more moral versions of our old self. We were redeemed so that we could become new creations, new creatures. Our old self dies. Everything that used to mark us, everything that marks the world, we are to put to death so that we have new life in Christ. For the saints, our lives are in opposition to the world. But many Christians and many of us have a conception of a gospel that is only slightly better. Well, Jesus redeemed me, so I stop cursing and I stop drinking too much and I stop watching TV shows I, I shouldn't and I go to church on Sunday. This is what Jesus died for. If that's what you think Jesus died for, that's so sad. But how many Christians do we know like that? Isn't that our, our temptation just to make these minor moral improvements and then go about our day? And so there are plenty of passages that talk about the Christian life, and we're going to look at many of them this morning. But I encourage you to write these down. We won't spend a lot of time in each of them and read them in context. There's also a lot of great books that talk about the Christian life. We have several on the, on the shelf back there. Uh, this one I would highly, highly recommend, The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges. There's a reason why our ladies are going through this. Because our holy God, as we're going to see in this passage desires for us to be holy for us to be set apart and there is nothing more important on mother's day when we talk about the women of the church what do we want to mark the women of our church but holiness being set apart to our god their lives being devoted to him fully because they are his and he loves them and he desires for them to be in his care and and, and protection and to preserve them until the end and this struggle for holiness is always going to be a tension within us. How do I honor God yet go to work every day? How do I live a life that brings glory to my Father in heaven yet submit to my Father on earth? And, and on and on and on and on. And so this morning, I'm not going to get into a lot of do's and don'ts. This is not going to be a list, moral list of you should do this or you should do that. Because if we're clear, clearly talking about actions, we miss the point. This is a hard issue. The real question here is, is your doctrine the same as Jesus's? Is, are the desires of your heart for your life the same as Jesus's desire for your life? And every one of us is going to have to examine ourselves against the word of Christ and against the whole counsel of God. And what does God desire for his people? How are we to look in this world? So I'm not going to give you a list of do's and don'ts. I'm going to give you scripture. And in scripture, we will talk about what is underneath our desire to go after the world. And really, we're talking about identity here. Who the Christian is at his very core. And we're going to see how we live out the Christian life. We're going to see Jesus' desire for his people. And this really, as we read through this, this is the desire of every godly parent. Every mother out there is going to want all these things that Jesus wants. He has put that within us. For us to be kept and, and, and protected and for us to be satisfied in him and united together as brothers and sisters in Christ. This is a great family analogy. This will make for the strength of your Christian life and the strength of this church. So let's open our Bibles.
to John chapter 17. And as I've done the past few weeks, and I want us to do because of the nature of this prayer, I'm going to read it in its entire context. John 17, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you, whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, that they, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and they have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves." I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you loved us before the foundation of the world. You are outside of time. You created time. Nothing is beyond your power and your knowledge and your grasp. You control all things. And in your sovereignty, you called us. You chose us 
You sent your son to die for us that we might be yours. And your desire is that we may be holy unto you, a people worthy of your possession. Lord, help us in our weakness. Help us when we flirt with and go after every desire of the world that draws us away from you. Lord, help us in our weakness. Lord, help me, your servant, this morning in my weakness. There is no power in my words. I can do nothing on my own. Lord, I lean on you completely because it is by your word and only by your spirit that any of us can know you and be transformed into your image. So I pray that your spirit would teach us, guide us, convict us, instruct us, and continue to work in and through us in this world that you sent us into, that we might be ambassadors for your ministry of reconciliation as you are redeeming the lost to yourself. Lord, take this word and apply it to our minds and our hearts and our actions that we may be solely set apart, set aside for your service and your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want us to pay attention here as we read through our text. We're going to focus on verses 11 through 19. What does Jesus desire for his people? And how do we respond to that? Because remember, when we first started out, we looked at how Jesus can pray. He can pray because he has been given authority and glory by the Father. He is our mediator, our high priest. This is how he prays. Last week, we looked at who he prays for. He prays for those given to him by the Father. This is a prayer for the elect, not for the world. This week, we look at what he prays for. What does he desire for his people in his absence? And the next week, we're going to look at why he prays. What the the, the result of all this should be. So the first thing here we see in verse 11, and I am no longer in the world. To Jesus, it is already as good as done. There is no doubt in his mind. This is a prayer for after his resurrection that he's praying before his resurrection as if it's already happened. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. I'm coming, they're staying. I've been with them for for three years, speaking about his disciples now. Now there's going to be a, a separation. Jesus has a concern for them. He's not talking about how difficult the cross is going to be. Lord, give me strength for the cross. Lord, he's saying, Lord, give them strength. I have you perfectly. I want them to have you. This is how much he loves them, that in his final moments, he prays for them. This great concern for those he loves. And he reaches his hands up to heaven and he says, Holy Father. Holy Father. God's holiness is not to be separated from our holiness. We are to remember that our God is holy. We are not called to a holy God to be kind of good. We are called to a holy God to be holy, to be perfectly set apart, to be apart from the world, to be completely consecrated to Him. Holy Father, when He speaks to a holy God, He has in mind a holy and set apart people. His holiness demands our holiness. And He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name. He desires for them to be kept. Jesus said earlier, I've kept them in your name. I've made your name known. 
And when we talked about last week, the name of the Lord in Hebrew, name means reputation as well. It means your entire nature, your, yourself. Keep them in you. Keep them with you, in you. Let, you. let them be known by your name. And he gave them to the best keeper possible. The Father has kept them. Jesus' desire for his people to, is to be kept in the Father first and foremost. And then right after that, look at how this connects. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. The Son bears the name of the Father, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus' desire for the people of God is to be kept in the Father and to be kept with one another. Jesus' desire is that we are to be united in the Father and united in one another. These two things are right next to each other. This is why we take the fellowship of the saints and the, the building of the body of Christ so seriously. Because Jesus does. Right after he says, Father, keep them in your name, unite them to one another, that they may be one. So I just want to break this down a little bit. There's going to be much more next week. But just a couple things to consider when Jesus talks about oneness. We need to break this down because typically our idea of God and our idea of the Christian life is far too small. It is far too small. Because the first thing Jesus tells us, and we should look at this, is that they may be one even as we are one. When he says we, he's referring to father and son. The unity of believers is rooted in the unity of the Godhead. Our God is the perfect example of oneness. Our God desires to be one as Father and Son are one, inseparable throughout all eternity. This is the calling of the believer to be inseparable. One in the Father, through Christ, with each other forever. If you think it's just about potlucks and, and, and shooting the breeze and talking about the weather, you're thinking way too small. Jesus desires for us to be one in him forever. Because through his work on the cross, through his sacrifice for us, this mysterious union, this mystical union that we don't understand, we are bonded to Christ forever. And through Christ, we are bonded to each other forever. And Christ unites all believers as he said in chapter 10, he alludes to this. Chapter 10, verse 16, he says this, And I have, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Our shepherd, one flock. Jesus' whole purpose on coming to earth is to redeem one people for himself, that they be united in him and to the Father the same way that they are united. And we see this come up in many passages. I want to look at a couple quickly. Galatians 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. In Galatians, the argument here is, is who should we follow and, and what, what, uh, of what benefit is circumcision? But Paul says, you are one in Christ. I don't care where you came from. I don't care what you do to your body, mind, and soul. You are his, is what we see in Ephesians 4. There is one body. There is one spirit. Just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. 
one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. You see what's repeated again and again and again in there? One. This oneness, the, the apostles continue in their, their writings. We're going to be united in fellowship and devotion and grace. We see a beautiful picture of this in the early New Testament. Look at Acts 4, 32 and 33. This beautiful picture of the church. What should the church aspire to be? Now the full number of those who believed. Who's the church? The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had all everything in common. That is Christian unity. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. What is to mark the church? The oneness, one heart, one soul. This is not mine. This is given to me by God. We are one with each other. And the gospel goes out, and great grace was given to them all. This is Jesus' desire for his church. The other thing we want to think about, too, is this unity is necessary because the world is united. Jesus says that the sons of the Father are united to him. The sons of this world have their father, Satan. We're going to get into that more in the next couple verses. But we must be united against the world because the world is united against us. And it is very hard in the realm of spiritual warfare to be alone, wandering around. I like what Arthur Pink says here. I'm going to quote him a couple times today because it's that, it's that good and I can't say it any better. So he says this. Man, that's small. I hope you guys can see that. I'm going to send this out in the email tomorrow if you can't. And it is not true, and excuse me, is it not true that among the real people of God, despite all their minor differences... There is still a real, a fundamental, and a blessed underlying unity. They all believe God's word is inspired and errant of final authority. They all believe in the glorious person and rest upon the all-sufficient sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. They all aim at the glory of God. They all pant for a time when they shall be forever with the Lord. One as we shows that the union here prayed for us is a divine, spiritual, intimate, invisible, unbreakable one. Amen. Amen that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, verse 12, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them. Kept and guarded. This is the job of the good shepherd. I keep my sheep and I guard them. They are mine. He has guarded them from death. He has kept them from death. He has guarded them from apostasy. They have not gone. Jesus, this does not end when Jesus leaves. Okay, why are elders important in the church? Why do we see Paul in Titus? First important, set up elders in every church. Because the shepherd's job is still the same, to guard and keep the sheep. To guard the sheep from the wolves without, from the wolves within. We, we spent so much time in chapter 10 on the shepherd. But all this, this imagery of pulling the, the pest off of them, like feeding them, caring for them, protecting them, this same picture of what Jesus did has been, has been entrusted to unworthy people. But yet his care is that he, they are not left without shepherds in his absence. And he gives them their spirit. 
or his spirit, so that they can continue the job. And they are to be kept. And the ones who are to be kept will never be lost, except for one. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. So we don't get this in English, but there's a play on words here in the Greek. The same word for loss is the same word for destruction. It's the the same word here. This could be read, not one of them has been lost except the son of loss. Not one of them has been destroyed except the son of destruction. And so what he's getting at here is none of them have been lost except the one who was born to be lost. None of them will be destroyed except the son who was born to be destroyed. That, there's a purpose here, that the scripture might be fulfilled. This is to encourage the believers. The disciples at this point, they have not seen Judas come yet to betray Jesus. They may not even have put this together yet. But he's telling them in advance. One is going to look like he is lost. It's because he's supposed to be. That the scriptures may be fulfilled. This is to let you know that God's plan is above every evil thing that may catch us off guard. But now... Jesus still speaking to the Father here in verse 13. I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. We covered joy in chapters 15 and 16. That they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. So again, we also talked about the different uses of the word world. World is the evil system, but world is also the creation. Jesus speaks these things while still in the world so that they may have joy. Again, we see Jesus' desire for preservation and for protection, but we also see his desire for satisfaction, that we find our satisfaction in him, that his joy be in us. John understood this so well, he opens up his first letter with this. Look at 1 John, starting chapter 1, starting in verse 1. He lays out his case as an apostle. He lays out his case for the gospel, and he closes with something we see here. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and, testi- and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, which we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father. We see this, the gospel revealed from the Father to the Son so that the saints may have fellowship, this unity, fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. This is a consistent message for the beloved disciple, the one who leans on Jesus' chest at a dinner, that you may have joy in Christ. The result of the gospel is a joyful life in the believer. Christ is the unity of the church, and he is the joy of the church. We see his desire for preservation, unification, protection, and satisfaction. I wish that they have that joy in themselves. This is not just warm and fuzzies. This is something that you actually possess in themselves. It's it's something that is a part of who you are. I'm going to quote Arthur Pink here again because he's dead on the money. A miserable Christian is therefore a self-contradiction. Say this again. A miserable Christian is therefore a self-contradiction. If you walk around miserable all day, 
you don't understand the gospel. You cannot be a miserable Christian if you understand the price that has been paid for you and whose you are. A joyless Christian is one who is out of communion with the Father. Other objects have engaged his heart, and in consequence, he walks not in the light of his countenance, but what is the remedy? To confess our sins to God, to put away everything which hinders our communion with him, to make regular use of the means which he has graciously provided for the maintenance of our joy, the word, prayer, meditation, and the daily occupation of the heart with Christ, dwelling constantly on the glorious future that awaits us, proclaiming to others the unsearchable riches of Christ. How do you define the Christian life better than that? How do you find the remedy for a joyless life? And what does Jesus follow with joy? What reminds us of our joy? Verse 14, I have given them your word. Right from joy to the word. How is that joy to be to be stoked and to be t- continued and to be reminded by the word. I have given them your word. And it is not long after joy that we get hatred. That, they may be f- that my joy may be filled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them. Is this not the Christian life? Joy in Christ. Go to the word. Hated by the world. Rinse, recycle, repeat. How many times does the world remind us that we are in opposition with it? How many times must we go back to his word to be renewed in our joy? Jesus understands this. And he's telling them, you want to be in my joy? I have given you my word. You need my word because the world hates you. Don't just think that it it hates you because you're so special. The world does not hate you because of you. Don't make it about you. The world hates you because you are not of the world because I am not of the world. The world hates me, and the world hates my word because it proclaims me. And so you, at the same time, cannot be loved by the world and love my word. These two things are in complete opposition to each other. The world, Jesus said, the world hates me because I testify that its works are evil. But you are to find your joy in my word. And if anyone knows how cruel this world is, it's Jesus. Anytime you think you've got it rough, anytime you think you're being persecuted, you have not suffered to the point of death and death on a cross. You have not heard people yell, crucify him, by those who were just following you around for free, free food and free bread a few days ago. But right now, he is about to go to the Father. He reminds us in chapter 15 that he's hated by the world. And right now, he has perfect joy. He is in perfect union with the Father. They are completely one. He lacks nothing right now. And that is his desire for us. Because our kingdom is not of this world. Jesus, we are citizens of of, of his kingdom. The world hates us because we don't belong here. We are strangers in a strange land. You ever travel somewhere where you don't know the culture and you stand out like a sore thumb, like whenever you drive down to iDrive and you know who the tourists are, strange people in a strange land, this is the Christian. We are strange people walking around. We're the ones with, with cameras and fanny packs. We are. Because the rest of the world belongs here and we don't. I like how Paul says this in Philippians 3. 
Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Before we go forward. Brothers, join in imitating me. Imitate me as I imitate Christ and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. How do Christians endure in the hatred of the world? Keeping their eyes on other Christians and encouraging one another because, going on, for, for from many of whom uh, I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. This is coming out of the church. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, whose minds set on earthly things. How can we be set apart? How can we be citizens of heaven when our minds are set on earthly things? Don't be like those whose mind are set on earthly things. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await. There's this anticipatory language. We are on the edge of our seat. I'm not worried about this world. I'm not consumed with what's going on here because something far greater, when my Lord comes, is going to bring me there. There is our citizenship. And what is far greater than the things of this world? We don't need to set our minds on the things of this world because the one who will come, Jesus, will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. How can we be preoccupied with this stinking body that lets us down every opportunity it gets? Every year you get older, there's a new thing that, that hurts. And I'm in my 30s. But our glorious bodies are to be like his. And by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself, the one who rules all things is going to use his power to redeem us fully, to glorify us. That is our citizenship. That is our identity. But do we spend more time reflecting on that or reflecting on what we're going to wear or what people think about this body? So here's a self-examination question for us. There's only one that you can answer. Does your life, what you value, what you do, reflect the kingdom of God or this world? Those who know you, they describe you by the things of the world or they describe you by the kingdom of God. Are you consumed with things that are passing away? Or are you overwhelmed with the things of God that bring him glory and that will never pass away. Because when Jesus says that they are not of the world just as I am not of the world, his desire is that we are to be like him. We are to be set apart as he is, as so focused on the Father, as so concerned with his brothers in Christ, that the wor- he's not worried about the world. He's not of the world. Do we feel the same way? Verse 15. Here's another thing that Jesus does not ask for. Jesus is very clear on what he is saying and what he is not saying. Earlier he told us he's not praying for the world. I'm praying for my own. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now this gives us a lot of, this causes us a lot of concern. Because when things get difficult, what, what do we say? Like, Lord Jesus, when are you going to come? Take me home. Why do you allow this to continue? Would you hurry up already? I don't want to be here anymore. Can I be with you? But if Jesus is praying not to take them out of the world, it's actually better that they are in the world. So this is actually a good thing that they remain in the world. Now, theologian J.C. Ryle mentions that Moses, Elijah, and Jonah 
all pray to be taken out of the world. And none of those prayers are answered. It was better for them, it was better for the gospel, God's good news of redemption, that these prophets remain on the, world, on the earth. And so it is better for the gospel and for the kingdom that these disciples remain on earth. And why do they remain? Why does he pray for them not to go? Why does he pray for them to stay? Because he came into the world to do the work of the Father, to accomplish redemption on the cross. And his disciples are to continue that ministry, to be witnesses to that redemption. There is a glory to God in the witness of the disciples to the redemption of Jesus Christ that is far better in the grand scheme of things for the kingdom of God to be completed than for us to be taken as soon as things get difficult. I like this because Paul has this struggle in Philippians 1. Look at verse 23. I am hard-pressed between the two. So Paul's talking about, it's better for me to be with Christ because I'd rather be with him. But Paul works this out in front of us. I love how Paul is so transparent and vulnerable with us here. I am hard-pressed between the two, to go and be with Christ or to, or to stay. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Why do the disciples need to stay? Why are we still here? For the sake of other believers, for the sake of the gospel going out, for the sake of the redemption of the lost. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Again, we see joy here. He continues with them that they grow in Christ and that they have joy. It's better to be with Christ, but for your sake, I'm here. So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul knows that the glory of Christ is the greatest gift he can give to the church. And so he comes again so they know this glory in Christ through him. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whatever, whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Before you go on, what do we see repeated again here? Standing firm, one spirit, one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. What is the church supposed to look like? It's better to be with Jesus, but for our sake, we are, we are one in Christ. We stand together firm so that our witness goes out. This is a culture without social media. This is a culture without, without Twitter feeds and 24-hour news cycles. But Paul hears of the faith of the church because it is worth proclaiming. It is worth writing home about. And he encourages them to stand side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is the world that hates them still. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. We're not guaranteed ease in this life. But we're to, he prays that we might be kept from the evil one. There is going to be some suffering, but there will not be destruction. There's only, he only speaks of the one who would be in destruction. And, and so when he talks about keeping them from the evil one, this is important enough that Jesus should pray about. And I see two mistakes in Christianity these days. People who overestimate the evil one, and I hear about this equal battle. There's a battle in your soul between God and Satan. There's no battle in your soul. The battle is won. 
These are not two equal forces. Don't overestimate the power of the enemy. But don't underestimate it either. Because it's important enough for Jesus to pray about. In Christ, you are enemy number one, and he is interceding on your behalf. He has many tools and influences in his disposal. John goes on to say at the end of his first epistle of what Satan has in his disposal. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, the Christian life again. But he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. But we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So as Jesus prays, he, he knows that the world we're in is in the power of the evil one. We are of God, but the world is of Satan, and he needs to intercede for us in that. And he goes on in verse 16 to repeat what he had said earlier. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. This repetition is to remind them, again, what is his desire for the church? And for us to remember, you are not of the world, because I am not of the world. But its placement is also important. He had just asked the Father to keep them from the evil one, because they are not of the world. The world is in the, the, the domain of the evil one. Remember this. And then what is his remedy here in verse 17? sanctify them in truth. Your word is holy. Same root word, holy, sanctify, consecrate. It means to be set apart. Sanctify them, set them apart. Notice the placement again. Look at this, this line of thinking here. The world is evil. They are not of the world. How, do, how, do, how, are they, how are they to be preserved, protected, and joyful? They're to be set apart. And how are they to be set apart? In truth. What is truth? Your word is truth. Holy Father, make them holy. Make them holy. Set them apart to you and set them apart from the world. These two things cannot be separated. And we are to be set apart and continually set ourselves apart. That's why I love that our women are going through the pursuit of holiness. Because this tension that exists in our lives of we have been sanctified by the Spirit. But we still must work out our salvation with fear and trembling. This is what Paul tells us in Philippians 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Well, that sounds a lot like work on my behalf, because, for it is God who works in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. His pleasure is our pleasure. Our joy in him is our sanctification, is our further and further being set apart for the cause of Christ. So now I just have to ask, if Jesus desires us to be set apart and set apart according to his word, how often should we be set apart? Just on Sunday? I'm going to step on some toes here. How many days are we to be holy? Where does our set-apartness come from? From the word of God. How many days should we be in the word of God? How many days should you work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Just on the days when you can fit it into your schedule? How about on every day that you are in the world, work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Jesus desires for us to be in his word every day. That is where our joy comes from. That is our reminder of who we are, where, where that comes from. How many days do you feed your body? How many days do you feed your soul? What is to mark the people of God to be sanctified in truth? Oh, this is too hard. Oh, wait a second, you want me to read my Bible every day? Do you check Facebook every day? Do you check Twitter every day? Do you watch TV every day? Listen to music every day? There are so many things you think you cannot live without, and that's what you are feeding yourself with. 
Are you feeding yourself with the Word of God every day? Are you praying every day? Are you meditating on it? Do you have fellowship with the believers? Do you desire the unity in the body of Christ that Jesus desires for you? These are real questions to ask ourselves. Because this is not legalism. This is the Christian life. I'm not saying this to put a guilt trip on you to get you to do more religious things. I want you to understand who you are in Christ. This is what he desires for us. Don't blame me. Blame Jesus. This is what he wants for us. And this battles with our flesh because our flesh so badly wants to be stuck in Facebook and be in someone else's life. Wants us to be on, on, on TV and just check out and be, and be distracted from the things of God. Not that those things are bad in and of themselves. But do they take a higher prominence than the word of God that Jesus prays sanctifies us and sets us apart so that we have joy in him? Because you must be sanctified before you can be sent. Look at verse 18. Sanctify them, verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Sanctify them and then send them. He is not sending out his, his ministers who are unsanctified, those, those who are not set apart from the world. You can't set apart missionaries to the world if you are of the world. You cannot call the world to repentance if you are doing the same thing the world's doing. Come to Jesus. He'll make you just a little bit better than you already are. That is not a gospel. That is not good news. Come to Jesus. He will bring you from death to life. Come to Jesus. He will make you a new creation. Come to Jesus. He will give you eternal life. Come to Jesus. He will reconcile you to a holy God because you are a wretched sinner. That is good news. That is what we are sent out for. And we are sent as he is sent. Why was Jesus sent? He was sent for the glory of the cross, to make the Father known through the redemption of his own. And so the, the disciples are sent out so that the Father will be known by the redemption of his own. We saw in Acts that the testimony of the disciples brought grace on the body. We are sent just as Jesus was sent. This apostolic charge goes out to the disciples, but it does not finish with them. Next week, we're going to look at, I do not ask for these only in verse 20, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. This gospel ministry continues. He sanctifies and he sends to the disciples and on, on through the generations to us. And far too many Christians are comfortable being in the world, living a life of the world, and they don't realize how often do you reflect that you are sent into the world by Jesus himself to be ministers of his gospel of reconciliation as he's reconciling the world. So Jesus told all those parables about how do you want to be found when I return? Do you want to be the faithful servant when I return? Do you want your, your lamps to be lit? Are you going to be the ones who are not prepared for the party? So he closes with this. And for your sake, I consecrate myself. Same root word here. I set myself apart so they may be set apart. Because of Christ's holiness, I sanctify myself for them. His holiness is the basis of our holiness. He is set apart by his blood to make propitiation for his own to be set apart. Be holy as I am holy. The last passage we're going to look at this morning is Ephesians 5. This great picture of marriage. Paul uses marriage as the perfect gospel analogy. Husbands, love your wives. This is your Mother's Day command. Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What does Christ's consecration mean? That he might sanctify her. He gave himself up that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that 
he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. His consecration is for our consecration. All this, all this must be done. This is the petition that the rest hinge on. I consecrate myself to send them out. My holiness is the basis of holiness, their holiness. Jesus willingly went to the cross because he knew that his consecration was the guarantee of ours. And then we are sanctified and we are sent in Christ. So quickly to close. Jesus' desire for his church when he leaves the world. Look at these things we saw today. Preservation. For them to be kept in the Father and continued in his name. Unification. For them to be one in Christ and one in each other. Protection. For them to be protected from death and from the evil one. Satisfaction. That they may have complete peace and joy in Christ. And consecration that they may be sanctified according to his work. And my final question is, is your desire for your life the same as Christ's? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of the gospel. Thank you that you consecrated yourself, that we might be set apart for your purpose. Lord, forgive us when the Christian life is far too small. Forgive us when we are so content with the things of the world that we lose sight of eternal riches. Help us to be consumed with your glory and the spread of your gospel because we are yours and no one can snatch us out of, our, out of your hand. There's nothing the world can do to us. There's nothing the world can offer us that competes with you. I pray that that desire burns within our heart and that we are a people who are marked by these characteristics that Jesus cared enough for to pray for. I ask these things by the power of your Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, to the glory of God the Father, who is our fount of every blessing.